Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, everybody. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles. And I have a great program for you. I have Todd Goldberg back on the podcast. He is the New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen books, including the novels Gangsterland, Gangster Nation, and Living Dead Girl. He is also the author of story collections entitled Simplify and Other Resort Cities. His latest book, is a brand new story collection entitled The Low Desert. It is available from Counterpoint. And it is superb. I cannot imagine there will be too many story collections published this year that are more satisfying than The Low Desert. I just loved it. Todd Goldberg first appeared on this program in episode 320 on October 12, 2014, and again in episode 488 on October 18, 2017. And now he's back, and we had a great talk. That's coming up in just a moment. Please remember, or if you haven't heard yet, I would like to advise you that this podcast is now available on YouTube. I finally got my act together and got a, a YouTube channel for the Other People podcast. The entire archive is on YouTube now. Please subscribe. It's free. If you like the show and you want to support it, you can do that over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod, patreon.com slash other PPL pod uh, for as little as a dollar a month. Throw a buck uh, in the hat uh, or more. And there are various levels and tiers and prizes. Uh, you can get tote bags, mugs, stickers, T-shirts, book club memberships. I'll write you a postcard uh, in the mail. I'll wish you happy birthday. Like, it's all tricked out. Just check it out over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Crossing, publisher of The Ardent Swarm by uh, last week's guest, Yamen Manai. The Ardent Swarm is the winner of multiple literary awards over in France, as well as a Penheim Translation Fund grant. This critically acclaimed novel is a brilliantly accessible modern-day parable. 
Yamen Manai is a Tunisian-born resident of Paris, France. And in The Ardent Swarm, he uses a masterful blend of humor and drama to reveal what happens in a country shaken by revolutionary change long after the world stops watching. This is a novel about a bee whisperer, a beekeeper, a bee expert, a man with an uncommon knowledge of bees. It's fascinating. It takes place in a desolate North African village, and uh, I recommend it. I also recommend last week's conversation. The Ardent Swarm is available now from Amazon Crossing. Amazon Crossing publishes award-winning and best-selling books from around the globe, making international literature accessible to many readers for the first time. For more on that, check out apub.com. So Todd Goldberg is my guest. In addition to being a best-selling author, he is also the co-host of Literary Disco, a wonderful podcast uh, that he does with Julia Pistel and Ryder Strong. I hope I'm pronouncing Julia's last name right. Uh, Todd is also the co-host of Open Book on KCOD, Coachella FM, in the Coachella Valley. He lives out there in Indio. He is a professor of creative writing and the director of the Low-Res MFA program in creative writing and writing for the performing arts at the University of California, Riverside. He's an all-around excellent literary citizen and a great writer, and I'm just pleased to have the chance to catch up with him. He also happens to be very funny, which never hurts. So here he is, folks. This is my conversation with Todd Goldberg, his brand new critically acclaimed short story collection is called The Low Desert. I turned in the last rewrites of this book on April 28th of 2020. Oh, no shit. Yeah, like I, I and it's funny as I was writing one of the stories, Pilgrims, there's a scene in Pilgrims where a woman who has had a terrible life in the book that I've that I've given her uh, is sitting in the waiting room of a prison and Fox News is playing and she's trying to figure out like what's important. What should she be paying attention to? And I just put a single line in that, like, should I be worried about all these sick people in China? And I mean, it's sort of an evergreen thing to say, but it was about what we were going through at that time. And just in general, you know, writing and rewriting from, you know, January through April, and writing new stories in January through April, April as well, um, it was impossible not to have my own paranoia and claustrophobia and fear show up in these stories. But the truth is, the only time I didn't feel scared, the only time I felt in control of my own life was when I was sitting at this desk and working on those stories. No kid, Yeah, I felt that. I felt that. And like, these are very dark stories um but beautiful stories and surprisingly um i don't know like i i think of you as such like a i mean i know you have your darkness but you're a funny guy (laughs) you're like you're a good time and then i was reading these stories and i was like damn man these are like these pack a punch and i mean that in a good way and um I guess like, you know, this is the place to put it, you know, especially when you're trying to process pandemic year and all that we've been through, you know, as a country over the past four years, like it kind of made emotional sense to me that it's not like you're going to write like a slapstick comedy. I guess you might, but you know, well, I mean, so that's a funny thing. Like there is sort of, there's one 
broad satire in the book, right? The the story about the goon who goes back to school. Right. Um, so that's a story called Goon Number Four. And the just the broad outline, if you if you're one of the few people in America who's not yet bought the book, um, <laughs> is that um there well, I'm fascinated by the dude in the background. And and this is for everything, right? Like I'm always interested in the dude who's just in the background. But particularly in crime movies and crime TV shows and crime books, I'm fascinated by the dude who walks up with the briefcase and opens it up. <laughs> and like, that's his job. I'm going to open up this briefcase. <laughs> and so I wanted to write a story about a guy, goon number four, you know, at the end credits of a TV show, who like realizes, ah, oh, this gig is up, man. I got to figure out something to do and, and goes and takes a class at a community college. Um but the interesting thing about it is I had written that story originally for an anthology that came out. I knew I was writing for my book, but it was first in this anthology. And that anthology came out in the summer of uh, 2019. I'm sorry, in the summer of 2020. Um, however, as I was rewriting it to turn it in for this book, my editor was like, it's too slapstick in the existing version to go into this book. You have to bring the comedy down in order for it to work next to these other stories. And that was not a notion I'd ever really thought of before. Like, you can't have a, a broad satire like that and not have some reality in it in a, in a book where everything else is real um, and about violence and anger and all these other things. And that was a real sort of writing lesson for me because I like my natural inclination, as you know, is like is to tell the joke. But in this book, that was not my natural inclination. And did you, I mean, because I feel like, you know, I don't know a, a ton about crime writing or, you know, mm -hmm. um, gangster fiction, but I felt a deep sense of familiarity as I was reading the book um, because I've watched a ton of gangster films and I've, I've read crime uh, fiction and nonfiction through the years. And I, it's also sort of ingrained, I think, through film and television. There, right. are, there are certain... Um, I don't even know how to put it. I, I guess like tropes or um, character qualities or, you know, certain notes that you're playing that, you know, ring true and ring familiar to me. Uh, and yet at the same time, I felt that there is a, like a deep humanness and a, um, you know, uh, a, <laughs> uh, like a, a, a wisdom into he like uh, regarding human suffering that seems... <laughs> familiar to me from like the best literary fiction that I uh, read. And so it's a really nice blend. And I'm, a, I'm imagining that was what you were going for. Like I can feel Cormac McCarthy in these stories. Um, I yeah. Can... You know, this is the thing about writing about place, I think, you know, so this is very much a short story collection about place. You know, I, I call it the low desert, you know, that is the title. And the majority of the stories take place in desert cities. There are a few that don't. There's one that takes place in Chicago and one that takes place in the beautiful city of Fullerton, um, <laughs> which is a desert of its own kind, I suppose. Um, and so in a way, I was trying to, to write about a notion of the Wild West. So that that Cormac McCarthy analogy is, is not a bad one. Um, so that's an A. You get an A for the Cormac McCarthy. Um, because I'm writing about these notions of violence in the West and this landscape that have existed since gunslinger books, you know, and 
what I'm trying to do though is put a modern spin on it and talk about talk about bad people in bad situations who are trying to be good but aren't smart enough to realize they're making the worst decisions they possibly can. <laughs> if that makes sense. And when you write these, because I, you know, I was thinking to myself, and I, I'm thinking of my audience, especially for people who might be interested in writing crime fiction, uh, or for let's say somebody who thinks of herself as like a really explicitly literary writer, but who struggles with something like plot. I want to have a conversation with you about how you build your fiction, uh, how you built these stories. Are you working entirely? intuitively and just kind of making it up or you have to start with some kind of outline. Do you not like, do you have like, where do you begin and how do you do this? Well, I don't have an outline per se. Um, I knew that this collection was going to be about the often about the aftermath of violence and not the violence itself. And so many of the stories are examining someone a moment after they've done a really stupid thing. Right. Or it's about someone investigating someone's terrible choices. And so I knew that going in, I, I wanted to have that be um, a thematic through line. There's, there's an epigram at the beginning of the book from the Talmud, which says that a prisoner cannot free himself. And that's what I'm writing about. You know, you, you cannot free yourself once you've been put into the prison of your own worst decisions. And so now I have to write these stories to, to try to get that person out. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because I feel like this sort of it was it's making me circle back to like the last time we talked and the Trump presidency and like I, you know maybe I'm totally psychoanalyzing this to death but like I can imagine how you would be drawn to writing in this mode about people in the aftermath of their worst decisions like while or in the aftermath of bearing witness to what we've been seeing out of political leadership for the oh, past. Oh, for sure. Do you know what for I'm saying? Sure. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, yeah. it's like a quest for justice almost that I think so many of us felt like, when is there going to be any comeuppance for this? Is there ever going to be? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Brad, what we're talking about is the history of noir, you know? So like the gold medal era of noir came out of the depression. And so noir fiction has always been a reflection of, someone trying to put a correction into chaos. Like there's vast corruption. One guy's going to come to a town. He's going to kill every motherfucker in the town. <laughs> and that, that's the plot of Red Harvest, incidentally. <laughs> um, so absolutely, some of these stories are a reflection of that. And the, the main one, to be perfectly honest with you, is the title story, The Low Desert. However, I've been thinking about that story for 25 years. I've wanted to write a short story and a novel, really, and maybe a television show about organized crime in the Salton Sea in the late 1950s and the early 1960s, because the entire notion of the Salton Sea is a grift. It was it was a grift in 1905 when they allowed the, the river to jump its banks and fill an ancient salt basin. It was a grift in the 1950s when Chicago gangsters tried to develop it as an inland Riviera. It's a grift today when Instagram models go out there and shoot photos of themselves in the middle of the worst ecological disaster in America. What, and for people, for people listening, uh, I think most people have heard of the Salton Sea, but maybe for non-Californians or non-Southern Californians, 
uh, you just sort of described it. It was a salt basin, and then the Colorado River was allowed to kind of flood in, so it created this giant lake, essentially, in the middle of the piping hot, like, desert. <laughs> right. It's a, it, at the time, in 1905, it was a 40-mile-long saltwater lake. They didn't know it was going to be salt water, though, because they were taking natural water from the river. But no one was smart enough to realize that if you flood an ancient salt basin, you got salt water. <laughs> and so, like, there's all these this vast history of people just not really paying attention to what was going on there and, and just saying, well, fuck it. You know, we'll, we'll see what we can do. We'll, we're just going to build around this. Um, and it, it, it's. You know, it's displaced Native American tribes. Um, it's displaced, um, you know, every wild animal that lived there. Um, the, it's just a history of crime there. And so I wanted to use the Salton Sea and the image of the Salton Sea as this out front corruption, this thing that all of us can see and understand if we spend two minutes reading the history of it as the symbol for this sort of notion of organized crime that I have in and around the Southern California deserts. But also, as I was writing it, it was absolutely a reflection of the time that we are living in. When, if there's a way to make a dollar, you will push aside um, the people most likely to get hurt. And I wanted to write about that. Um, and I want to keep writing about that, it turns out. You know, it, it really is a passion of mine. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, and you know, you talked about film noir, noir fiction, and film noir, the golden age of it being, um, you know, in the wake of the Great Depression. That's something that I think if I thought about it hard enough, I know I would I would come up with, you know, just thinking about <laughs> uh, think, thinking about film history. But right. it's not something that's top of mind to me as somebody who, um, you know, I'm not a crime fiction writer. I'm curious to know, as somebody who's been steeped in it for a long time, if there are rules that you've either come upon in your reading and research and study or if they are something that you've kind of generated yourself like this, like these stories and this kind of storytelling seems to operate according to a certain code. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I'm getting, I was getting at that when I was talking about like the familiarity of it, you know, uh, like the way that this stuff gets hardwired into you after you've spent enough time in the culture. But is there something you could tell my listeners like explicitly about how this stuff works? Yeah. You know, it, 
I just did a talk about this at a writer's conference about making sort of franchises and, and continuing characters. And the fact is, when you talk about noir fiction and, and, and detectives or, you know, hitmen, things like that, the stuff that I've literally built the house in that I'm sitting in right now, it really all rolls back to a paragraph in the Maltese Falcon um, where Sam Spade is talking to a woman it's towards the end of the book, the femme fatale of the book. And I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the exact line memorized, but she has asked him basically just to let her go, just to forgive the fact that she's done this horrible thing. And he says, it's like asking a dog uh, to chase a rabbit and then give it up when he catches it. Um, it happens sometimes, but it's not the order of things. And I, I, I've paraphrased horribly this wonderful paragraph, um, but that's the code, right? Like a detective or a um, hitman or that lone wolf who comes into a town and, and mucks everything up, he, he or she may every now and then show a gentle kindness. They might do the right thing. Um, the shark might sometimes take it easy on the seal, but it's not the order of things. And you can always expect that in stories like the ones that I'm writing, um, and really in the history of noir fiction, that that order will, will impose itself. Eventually, the right thing will happen. And oftentimes that right thing is a guy will kill another guy, um, or someone will snitch on someone to save their own, their own life. Um, and you see it time and time again. However, what I try to do in my own work is tip that model over by primarily writing about bad guys. I very rarely write about a good guy. And when I do write about a good guy, he's a good guy who's, you know, who's so messed up in some other fundamental way um, that his choice-making ends up being bad. But what I've found over the course of my career, you know, choosing to write books about a, a hitman who hides out in Las Vegas as a rabbi in my last two books, um, you know, it, it forces you to involve the reader. Like, it's an absurd convention that I've created. And it's possibly really um, against the Jewish faith. <laughs> and eventually I will be excommunicated. <laughs> um, but it allows you to to look at the choices that we make based on the faith that we have. And the faith that we have often guides us. And I'm not talking about religion necessarily. I'm talking about your own personal spirituality, your own code. And that's what I try to impose on my characters. So that, yeah, there's some rules for sure. Um, but if you really want to surprise a reader, you have to subvert those rules. Right. But you got to know them first to subvert yeah. them. And I'm thinking in terms, I'm thinking of like horror fiction. I'm thinking of the movie Scream, which is like really self-referential. And they're like talking about the different rules of horror fiction and i, I right. guess i guess there are some similarities for crime fiction there are certain things that as readers or as viewers we expect um but you know like just that like one of the things i'll point out that i really enjoyed about your collection is the collision between um i don't wanna, i don't know i don't want to sound too derogatory but like low culture Mm -hmm. and uh the crime world like like just run of the mill shit like in the i want to say it's in the first story where the guy is in the valley <laughs> you know like uh I've, i have such a terrible memory as a 
person and as a reader. But do you know what I'm talking about? And yeah. you're like re- you're making references to like certain restaurants and Black Angus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm like, oh my god! So like all these all these bad decisions and all this bad behavior is like juxtaposed against like Best Buy or whatever right. it is. You know, something that's totally recognizable and ordinary in the day to day lives of most Americans and. Yeah, that's that's totally intentional. You're absolutely right. I mean, so the story that you're talking about, it's a story called The Royal Californian. And it's about a karaoke singer who kills his partner. They're karaoke singers and they're also drug dealers. Um, and he kills his partner and gets shot in the foot and is trying to escape California. And his car breaks down in India, which is where I happen to live. And he ends up checking himself into the hotel, The Royal Californian where all sorts of bad things happen. But he's a he's a karaoke singer in Northridge at the Black Angus on <laughs> on Corbin. <laughs> um because you know that's where noir happens. Noir doesn't happen at um you know at at, at the at, at Trader Vic's, right? Noir happens when you realize you're singing karaoke at the Black Angus on Corbin. <laughs> And like that's all you're ever gonna be, is the guy who sings karaoke at the Black Angus on Corbin. The odd thing though is that when I was in college at Cal State Northridge, inexplicably, the Black Angus on Corbin for a couple years was the spot. So they had they had this bar, the Fun Bar, and it was a remnant from like the disco year. So I went to college from 1990 to 1994, and like people would line up to get into the bar at the Black Angus on a Friday night. And it was like the spot for a couple years. And then I, I very vividly remember one day standing in line with everyone else from Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity, waiting to get into the Black Angus and turning to my friend Vitaly and saying, what are we doing? We're waiting in line to get into the bar at the Black Angus. And Vitaly was like, you're right. This is absurd. <laughs> Turned around and left and never went back. And like that was a good choice on my part. For the main character of the story, he never leaves the Black Angus fun bar. Um, but the other genesis of that story is that I had always wanted to write a short story about a guy who sings Brick by Ben Folds 5 at karaoke. Like, what, what kind of guy sings Brick? Which is, if you're not familiar with it, uh, it's it's one of the few top ten singles about abortion that, <laughs> that have been around in the, in the common era. It's a it's a shock that there haven't been more. Six a.m. day after Christmas, uh, <laughs> a terrible song. Um, but I've always wanted to write that character, and and I never knew really how to do it. And then one day I was driving here in in the desert where I live. And I drove past this um, this hotel called the Royal Plaza Inn. And I was like, who stays at the Royal Plaza Inn? And then I saw that they had a bar there called Cactus Jack's. And I was like, who stays at the Royal Plaza Inn and then has a drink at Cactus Jack's? And then this is all happening over the course of like nine seconds. And then I see that there's a sign in the window saying, under new ownership, soon to be Steers 
And I was like, who stays at the Royal Plaza Inn and goes to a bar called Steers? <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I, you know, that story was out there. But, you know, this notion of like the, the common regular world and, and the crime world, when you live in a resort town like I do, like there's a real underbelly, you know, uh, and when I was a kid working um, in hotels and resorts, like I was I was privy to so much minor crime and malfeasance that it doesn't even barely, you know, matter to get into. But just like every stupid crime I did, because you could just steal from tourists because tourists are so blinded to the fact that they think everyone's happy to see them. No one here wants to see you. <laughs> we all hate you. We all want bad things to happen to you. And I love writing about that. I love writing about crime in a resort town because it is such a weird, dark under undertone to everything. Okay, I want to talk to you about this because this, this to me is kind of like the magic of your entire, well, this collection, but also like your your oeuvre like <laughs> this uh, i don't think that it's necessarily something i would automatically think you know when you tell somebody who doesn't have a lot of context oh i write crime fiction set in palm springs i think a lot of people would be like or or in or in the you know that general region right people would think to themselves well, isn't palm springs just like old people golfing and and uh like people sunbathing and stuff but yet the more that i you know the more that i was reading uh your stories the more i'm like yes like it's such a rich and um, unexpected and uh, I guess in, in the end, logical and funny. It's just great. You know what I'm saying? It's just great having spent a little bit of time out there, out that way for me to read this kind of fiction set in that place because there is a menace to the desert in general mm -hmm. and just that right. artifact, the artificiality of uh the whole place like how is this even here how are there green golf courses ex existing out here and this i'm going to tell you how it's here it's built by organized crime well there <laughs> like, we go the history of the coachella valley outside of the folks who lived here from the start which are the Kuya and cabazon indians this is their land um palm springs was developed by by crooks and criminals um so in the short story, The Low Desert, there's this character uh, who shows up named uh, Bobby Faraci, who calls himself Mr. Palm Springs. And he's based on a real character, a Chicago gangster named Ray Ryan, who built most of Palm Springs and also built the Salton Sea. Um, but the thing is, is that so the desert is an open city for organized crime. What that means is any crime family can come in here and do business and as long as they don't kill somebody else in town, it's fine. It's wide open. No one's going to step on you. Bonanno, Gambino, Chicago Outfit guys, it doesn't matter. As long as you don't hurt someone else's business, go ahead and scam whoever you want. Just if you And if you do screw up, don't ever leave Palm Springs because as soon as you're out of Palm Springs, we're going to blow up your house. So this guy who went by Mr. Palm Springs, he screwed over everybody. He screwed over every gangster that rolled through the desert for 50 years. And they didn't kill him until he went back to Evanston for his mom's funeral. And they blew up his car as he was going to the gym. <laughs> when was this? 1980. <laughs> Damn. They don't forget. No. 
But growing up out here, you know, I grew up with kids whose last name was Bonanno and Gambino because this was the this was their vacation home. And so they would knock up somebody. And so there's this line of families of gangsters that I went to school with. And then the Chicago mob and the L.A. mob are related. Um, and so there's a bunch of guys from the L.A. mob who moved to Palm Springs so that they could do their business in L.A., but raised their families in Palm Springs. And they all had Italian restaurants all up and down the street. And I was friends with all of them. And then periodically be like, hey, Dom, we haven't seen your dad around. He's like, ah, he's doing a bid. You're like, what? <laughs> Wait, so, so okay, so you growing up, like you had actual proximity and insight into organized crime. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was it was such an open secret in the desert. Um, you know, think of it in the context of what you know, which is Frank Sinatra lived here. Right. There's a street, Frank Sinatra Boulevard, which is where the campus of UCR in Palm Desert, where I work, is on Frank Sinatra. Always gives me a chuckle when I, when I turn down that street. Um, so he lived here, and he brought all his boys with him. So there were all these guys that were like muscle for Frank Sinatra, and they all had Italian restaurants up and down the valley for a period of time. And they all went by fake names, but everyone knew exactly who they were. So there'd be a guy whose name was like, Bobby Milano, but everyone knew that he was really Bobby Cacci, a New York leg breaker, but he called himself Bobby Milano and he was in Palm Springs. Like it's just a, a rich history of it. But the way this sort of folds into my stories outside of, you know, stealing some of it for my own fictional purposes. And I've always sort of done that in, in my crime stories as I write sort of adjacent to the truth. Um, is that that menace you speak of is a real thing, right? You know, there are bad people out here. And I'm not talking about bad people at the high gangster level. I just mean like, you know, people that are going to the resorts and selling cocaine, you know, going to the resorts and stealing your car. Um, these people that are transients that come in only seasonally to work events, work Coachella, work the tennis tournaments, all these little things, all these sort of side events where they come into town to rip off tourists. All that is real. And... Uh, you know, I've always been privy to it. I've always seen it. I've had friends that were involved with it. Um, but it's, I mean, you, you know what it's like, listeners, like when you go to Vegas and like you stay up till four o'clock in the morning and you can't believe what an amazing time you're having. And then you wake up and the sun's out and you look out your window and you're like, that's what the strip looks like. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, why did I take so much ecstasy last night? Yeah, I feel like, like shit. Yeah, like, oh, so that smell of vomit, that's not on me. That's just the way the city smells. <laughs> that's interesting. Well, you know, too, I think, like, something about the desert, like Vegas, uh, Palm Desert, the surrounding communities all throughout that valley, and then, you know, just inland California, uh, but especially once you get out into some space. Like, I, 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 when I drive through there, I find myself wondering, like, who lives here? I do. I know, but you live in Indio. I'm talking about... <laughs> I guess I'm talking about those communities, but I remember earlier this year during the pandemic, like uh, my wife and I were like, you know, we're trying to like think of something to do with our kids. We're going crazy. Yeah. And uh, we went through like a cycle of weeks where we would just go on drives because it was mm -hmm. the only thing we could really do. Like you're kind of bubbled in your car. And uh, we drove out to Hemet. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. 
I, for, I think we were no, we were going to. I, we had never been to uh, Idlewild. I was oh, like, right, right. Yeah. I was like, I just want to see Idlewild, and you know, maybe there'll be some snow, or I don't know what I. I just wanted to see it. I wanted to lay eyes on it, and we went through Hemet, which is where Gold Base is, the Scientology, you know, compound. Yeah. And I'm just driving through that town, and I'm like, what is going on out here? And uh, I guess like Man. that kind of. <laughs> Like your your fiction speaks to what's going on out there. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I I've always liked writing about um, sort of beautiful losers. I guess you know um, the people who live in Hemet because they feel like no one's going to chase them there. Um, and, and you know, like who lives in Hemet? A lot of it is people that work at the base. You know. Right. Um, it's also people who work in the farms, um, agricultural workers. But then there's the people who live in Hemet because they know that the cops are like, eh, there'd be a lot of traffic to get out there. Right, right. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. Like, I used to live in Colorado, and I feel the same way about uh, people who live up in the mountains. Like, there's obviously, like, Aspen and Vale, and, you know, there's, like, ski resort people right. who are just, like, awash in privilege. But there's a lot of people up at altitude they're either just like kind of isolates or they don't like to be around a lot of people or um, they might be broken in some way, <laughs> you know, right. like I think that's like you, you're capturing something about the kind of person who I often like think about when I'm either up at altitude or out in the desert or in these kind of more remote uh, places I'm, and wondering about who's who's there, like who's up in that house yeah. That I can that I can barely see through the trees, or who's living in that one story like you know stucco ranch, uh, you know in the middle of Hemet. You know I'm just uh I'm, yeah I'm that, that's the stuff that like that's how I write a story. Like to to your original question of you know do you plan this stuff out? Where does it come from? A lot of times it's me looking at something and saying who lives in who lives there? How did that happen? Like why is that person doing that thing? And there actually, there was a great review of my book uh, that came out the other day that put a name to this thing that is true. And I, I really appreciated it, where he said, like, if you live in the desert, there's some things that happen that are so surreal to someone who doesn't live in the desert that it seems incomprehensible. But to you, it's just desert shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, that's what I'm trying to write about. So we we had talked about the story earlier about the karaoke singer in, in that short story about midway through a clown arrives right in the short story, a silent clown sitting at a bar. And if you live in the desert, like that is not surprising in the least. <laughs> like that's just straight up desert shit. You might walk into a bar and there's an off duty clown having a <laughs> drink of some coffee and reading the paper. <laughs> but if you fly in from Albuquerque and you're staying at the Royal Plaza Inn or whatever, and you walk into the into steers, and then there's a off-duty clown smoking a cigarette and drinking some coffee. Like that doesn't seem like something that's real, um, but here it is. Like I, I wouldn't bat an eye at it. Just be like, oh yeah, the, there's the clown. Okay. Okay, so just to kind of put a finer point on how you build your stories, like I can imagine, you know, you're drawing inspiration from places you drive by, people you meet, your childhood. Like you kind of touched on a lot of mm -hmm. it. But mechanically, when you sit down to write, do you you just have these ideas swimming in your head and you start to put it down, or do you sketch out like a rough kind of outline, or do you have like a, a bullet bulleted list of notes? 
Um, sometimes I have uh, I have some things written down in, in a little notebook, um, but most of it's in my head. I don't really start to write a story until I know what's going to happen in it. Um, and so, you know, some stories have been floating around in my head for years and years and years, and I haven't written them. Um, and so there'll be a note in in a notebook that says, you know, cocktail waitress in Palm Springs whose daughter goes missing. Like, okay, that's the story I'm going to write. Um, but for the most part, you know, I'm I'm always starting with a character first. I'm always starting with a person. So I sort of come from the 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 philosophy: um, setting begets character, begets plot. So out of a place comes a person. Out of a person comes a story. And so if you open up my book to the first page of any story, you're going to find a person in a place and you're going to know exactly who you're with and exactly where you are, because that is me literally sitting down and saying, all right, I'm writing about a guy named Jacob who works at, who owns a, a restaurant in Las Vegas called Odessa. And he used to be a bad guy. Go. Um, and and that's the simple process by which I'm able to, you know, sort of set up the stories. And it's sort of a classical way. I mean, it, I, I'd like to say that I invented this, but it's sort of the 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 Tolstoy Tolstoying. It's the Russian way of writing short fiction: <laughs> a character in a place with a problem, and then go. And um, I'm I'm thinking too of the way that some of these stories interlock and characters repeat mm-hmm. and reappear. When you were putting these together was that always the game or was it something that you suddenly like realized in the creative process like oh wow this guy who works at odessa like did it did you did you suddenly find yourself realizing how this story fits with another story or um well it was intentional for sure um you know so the way this book actually came about um i had written gangster land and gangster nation and then I'd written another book, The House of Secrets, which I wrote with uh, with my friend Brad Meltzer. And I wrote those back to back to back, three books that were each 450 pages long or more in my computer. And that was all between 2014 and 2018. And I was really burnt out. And I had another novel to write, the concluding novel in the Gangsterland series. Um, and I was just... I the idea of sitting down and, and writing another 450 page book seemed extraordinarily daunting at that point. At the same time, um, we had optioned um, the books for a, a television show. And I knew that I wanted to have a bit more material for this universe that we were creating um, because the books themselves, Gangster Land and Gangster Nation, there's enough content in them probably for two seasons of television, maybe three. Um, and the next book, the concluding book, you know, that would be potentially the third or fourth season. But I really wanted some B stories, and I wanted to look at minor characters in the in the books and, and be able to to expand their lives out. And so I went to my publisher and I said, "Look, I, I I would really, I really am not ready to write this next book. I would really like to do a short story collection that examines some of these other characters, that expands this universe." It takes a couple older stories of mine that I inexplicably placed in this universe before I knew what I was doing and really connect them together and, and build a, um, a really firm gangster universe that I could write 10 books about, that I could do two TV shows about. I really want to create something larger for myself, um, but also challenge myself, do different things. 
it's a it's a champagne problem to be tired of writing a successful character you know and i i just like the idea of saying rabbi david cohen hated people who were late one more time was it was it was maddening i didn't want to do it um and so you don't want to start disliking your own creations and so my publishers bless them were like absolutely let's absolutely do that and so then I began charting the course of the kinds of stories I wanted to write, the secondary characters I wanted to talk about. And then I recognized that there were three older stories of mine that I wanted to pull into this book and connect them more firmly to the gangster universe that I had created with the, the first Gangsterland book. Um, so all of that took a bit of orchestration for sure. But then as I was writing, you know, there, there are more stories that I wrote than that are in the book. And so my editor and I would say, okay, this story doesn't quite work for this. It's a good story. Use it somewhere else. But when we started to figure out how we were going to stack these stories together to make the book feel like it had the punch of a novel, then some of the connections became more important. And I won't, I won't spoil the sort of the big, one of the big sort of gasp moments of the book, hopefully, but recognizing that a character that I had written about had a lingering problem and I was going to solve it um, and knowing what that story was going to look like and knowing what it was going to do to readers when they found it at the point where it arrives in the book, that was extraordinarily gratifying for me. And it was a really great creative process for me, a different creative process than writing short stories had been for me earlier in my career. I mean, this is my third collection of stories. But it's my first collection of stories that are, are completely interconnected. Hmm. And the other thing I notice about your work, I'm a you know, I, I suppose this is a necessity for anybody who hopes to be successful in this uh, realm, is the feeling of how much mastery you have over, uh, like not only the, the universe from the perspective of setting, but also from the perspective of genre. Um, mm -hmm. And what I'm getting at is like an understanding of uh, law enforcement terminology, mm -hmm. the gear, the lingo, the yeah. procedures, the, you know, I mean, I imagine you can fudge some of this as a writer of fiction, you know, you can get away with a little bit, but you have to have, no. <laughs> you ha you, like it, it actually helps. I think if it gives it a feeling of authority, if you're speaking, you know, I definitely felt like I was in good hands when I was reading about this. Like, not only that, you also have a, a nice understanding of like mob lingo and mm -hmm. how crime families are organized and how they relate to one another, at least insofar as it, it has been depicted traditionally in culture. Can you talk about how you got there? I mean, I, I guess like you just read a lot of this stuff, but um, like how much deep research have you done over the course of your career to get yourself into a place where you can write about it with confidence and uh, clarity? Pretty deep. Um, there's a great conference called the Writers Police Academy, and it takes place, typically it takes place in either North Carolina or Green Bay, Wisconsin, as opposed to all the other Green Bays, <laughs> um, <laughs> where it, it's a conference that is run for writers and it is all law enforcement professionals and so we're talking cops dea doj fbi ex-cia guys and then they also bring in criminals um you know people that are reformed we got guys that are that did deep cover in the mob for 10 years that are teaching this thing so there's that side of it which is great but then there's also like you get to do 
um, hand-to-hand combat and shoot guns and you get to storm a building and you get to do car chases. And I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a pretty incredible experience and you know, it's four days long and you really feel like you come out of it and you feel like a badass. When of course, like you've done, you've done nothing. Like every, everything is softer for you, but spending time with those guys uh, and they are primarily guys um, and talking to them and, and learning their stories, that helps to understand the lingo. Um, but it also just helps to understand the logic. And that's the thing that, that can't just be picked up in reading a book is understanding the logic of these guys and, and how they work. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Uh, so and this shows up in this book and it shows up in um, Gangster Nation as well. I, I write a lot about organized crime within the Native American communities um, because it is, in fact, sort of the next wave of organized criminal behavior. And there's there's also a really strange thing, which is that the uh, Native American gangs, the Native mob up in uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota have co-opted the Star of David as one of their symbols. And so you'll see these, like, straight-up hard knocks. You know, they'll have their shirts off and they'll have a giant Star of David on their chest. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the weirdest thing you've ever seen in your entire life. Um, at any rate, um, so I spent a lot of time talking to these guys that are tribal police, and I have an interest in tribal police as well for the stories that take place at the Salton Sea, um, because there's also it's it's a it's a weird arm of law enforcement. It's a sovereign nation, um, but it's also you're arresting your cousins a lot, and it's rife with corruption and organized crime and, and the influence of drugs and money and all that stuff. But at any rate, I was talking to these two guys. They were these two guys were teaching me how to spin a car out, and then we just got to bullshit. And and I was like, so you know, what's the, you know, what's the hardest thing you've had to do lately? Like this was, a, I had this conversation in 2018. I was like, what's the hardest thing you had to do lately? And this cop says, well, you know, we're doing a lot of um, picking up pedophiles on the internet now. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's got to be a strange thing. He's like, yeah. And then his buddy looks at him, and they look back, and he's like, ah, it's public knowledge. And I was like, okay, I'm about to hear something good. And he says, well, I was doing an uh, online thing for about six months with a guy pretending that I was a 13-year-old girl. And, you know, he was using a fake name and an avatar, and it was getting pretty, you know, pretty clear that he wanted to have sex with a 13-year-old girl and was willing to pay for it and all this stuff. And so we finally set up a meet. And um, there's a Starbucks right off of the reservation land. And this is, this is in the, um, I want to say it's like near the Upper Peninsula. Um, and he's like, so we agreed to go meet at the Starbucks, you know, it's a town of 5,000 people. And I pull up and the only car in the parking lot is my uncle's. And I was like, oh, God. He's like, so it turns out for six months, I've been having my uncle masturbate to a 13-year-old girl version of me and he now wants to pay to have sex with a 13-year-old girl version of me and now I got to go arrest him. Ugh. And I was like, what did you do? He's like, well, I could have called back up, but it would have been like 45 minutes till someone got there. So I went and I arrested him. And I was like, did he plead? And he's like, yeah, he, he, he pled down. He did like a year, got out, and then immediately started um, doing it again and ended up getting put away for like five years. Damn. And I was like, 
Now that is a horrible story, but also like like that's the kind of story I could write. I was going to say, is that is that in the pipeline? <laughs> is that in a collection somewhere? <laughs> like, but that's the kind of like emotional battle these people were dealing with because it would have been easy for that cop to let him go. Right. But it's like asking a dog to chase a rabbit and let it go. Maybe sometimes they do, but it's not the order of things. Especially for that kind of crime. I mean, you yeah. that would be a I mean, it's a, it sucks either way. What a terrible position to be in uh, right. as a human being. Like that's definitely the stuff of noir. Uh, yeah. So, and, but, and you went to that conference. That conference yeah. is fascinating to me. Like I, I want to go. That sounds oh, fun. You, when it's live again, you will go. I'll send you the details. Um, it's great. I've gone. I think I've gone three times. And the cool thing is that you also just get contacts with these people. And so, middle of the night, you got a you got a question. You can email these guys. Um, but you know, there's also weird stuff. Like I was, there, I was at a thing there when I was getting trained on hand-to-hand combat, and this guy, one of the cops, pulls me aside, and he was he was some retired cop from New York, and he was like, "So, uh, so Hollywood," he called me Hollywood. So Hollywood, I got a joke for you. And I was like, "Okay." He was like, "What? Uh, what the cop say to the other cop after they got done?" hitting Rodney King 46 times. And I was like, this is about to be a, the worst experience of my entire life. And I was like, uh, I don't know what he said. He's like, why didn't we do it 47? <laughs> I was like, what? He's like, oh, it's just a joke. It's just a cop joke. We don't mean it. You know, it's just like, it's like a liberal joke. And I was like, oh my God. What what is wrong with you? What is, and I just turned around and left. Wow. And so that's part of this thing too. Like when you're in this world, you got to understand that the truth is still the truth. There's still bad cops. Right. There's still these horrible people that you're dealing with. Sometimes there's good cops. There's bad cops. And then there's the people who don't say anything about the bad cops. And so it ends up being why I end up more often writing about criminals than I do about law enforcement. Um, Because in effect, every private detective book is about a failure of policing. And I'm not necessarily interested in writing those kinds of books, but I am interested in writing about the people who think they're smarter than the cops. And I think too, like it's so fascinating. Uh, You know, it's, uh, there's, it's one thing to be, a criminal uh, existing in fiction uh, like who is fantastical in the way of like Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) It's another thing to be the guy who's a karaoke singer at Black Angus who is kind of down on his luck and just makes like just like a a powerfully consequential bad decision. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And who... Chopping up his business partner and putting him in a Whole Foods bag. Well, that's what I mean, though, is that like, you know, a lot of times, like I think when you read crime news, you know, in the paper, you're on the New York Times or whatever, and you're reading about some um, murder or something, you know, you can think in these fantastical terms like, oh, he's like a complete psychopath or he's a sometimes it's just desperate people making a bad decision one night and then and then things snowball. You know, and it becomes this kind of avalanche of, um, you know, horrible judgment and criminality. 
Right. And that's what I think your work uh, in the low desert speaks to so well. It's like the human beings who do this stuff. Um, and then it's also, you know, it's also entertaining. Like it's really fun to read about crime. I, I don't think that's any big revelation. You know, people love these stories. Like the stakes are high. You know, like I found myself uh, inspired, quite frankly. Like I was like, wow, you know, this is a this is rich, you know, and it's, there's a lot of possibility here. Like not only like from a genre perspective, but from a literary perspective too. And I think you understand that in the work. And, um, I, I guess, uh, I'm complimenting you, Todd. I don't know no, what I, <laughs> I, I was waiting for the, but <laughs> well, you know what, you know, it's funny, Brad. And I don't know if, if you've experienced this at home during the pandemic, but like the the bad choices people make have been so prevalent in my mind because every night, like Wendy, my wife and I, you know, before bed, we'll watch like the Night Stalker documentary or we'll watch, you know. How do you do that? Shows. How do you do that without like I can't sleep if I watch that shit before bed. <laughs> it's very calming for me to, to watch someone make a really bad decision that I figure out before them. Okay. Uh, my moral superiority really feeds off of that. <laughs> but, you know, we'll watch like murder in a small town you know tonight on id or oxygen or whatever and it's always like most of the time in those cases it's like the choice was get a divorce or set fire to your wife and child <laughs> right <laughs> and you're like how do you decide like oh I'll, you know what? i'll set fire to them that that seems like the way to do it um it, it's a very strange thing and I think we as Americans have an insatiable flavor and taste for crime because it's the getting away with it that we're interested in. It's the notion that people believe they'll get away with it. Um, and that's what makes organized crime more interesting, I think, or why it's more romantic, is they get away with it. They do it so boldly that they get away with it. It's why Trump succeeded. He did it in front of you and said, so what? It's a nothing burger. You know, so these notions of criminality and the, the the logic to do the wrong thing are fascinating because if you're a normal moral person, you'd never do any of those things unless what? Like, like what's the point at which you'd be like, well, I should probably kill my spouse. <laughs> <laughs> like, how do you even get there? Yeah. Yeah. You know? I, I know that my wife would like to kill me for every spoon covered in Nutella I leave on the counter. <laughs> but I also know that the that the other choice of just being upset and making me clean it isn't going to land her in civil brand for the rest of her life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, too, you know, the there's a great like you speak of the desert and you speak of noir and like the, the kind of milieu that you're working in and where your stories are set in the low desert. Like there's something great about like this ultra bright, sunny, like kind of sun blasted terrain mm -hmm. as a place where like really dark shit happens. You know, yeah, like, I, I guess agree. that's, that's stating the obvious, but I mean, it's, that's, that's, uh, you know, it gets back to the whole, this is the land of golf courses, uh, thing that I was saying earlier. It's, you know, it's great. Like I found it really fun to like be in that world and to be like along for the ride, watching these people fuck their lives up. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it's such a strange juxtaposition. So I live, um, I live on a golf course in a gated community 
on a giant man-made lake. Like I live in the places that I mock in the things that I write about. And a few years ago, um, one of my neighbors was murdered and dumped on the golf course behind our house. And she was dating like a, like a grifter scumbag drug addict, but she was a teacher at a local high school. And you realize like your proximity to the things that, well, I realized that my proximity to the things that I write about is, is pretty close, you know, um, bad things happen in everyone's neighborhoods. But then one day you wake up and there's, you know, a dead woman on the golf course behind your house and she lives for, you know, four blocks away from you. Jesus. You know, weird, bad, bad stuff happens. Actually, you know what? I wrote an essay the other day for Crime Reads about all those strange murders that have happened around me during my life. Do not move next to me, brother. <laughs> Moral of the story. Do not move into my neighborhood. Like, even as a child, um, the, the Golden State Killer, who at the time was just the East Area Rapist, raped two girls on my block in Walnut Creek. And it was like this thing that my mom, mom would say, lock the doors or the East Bay rapist will get in. Well, she'd say that because two girls had been raped on her street. Jesus. Like, and that was when I was eight. Ugh. You know? And so that's always been in the, um, it's always been in the background of my life, these weird things. Yeah, I have a, there was a girl, uh, the home, the town that I was raised in in Wisconsin. It was right after we left. Like, I actually researched it. Um, I was kind of I was kind of writing about it, and I was trying to put the timeline together. My memory's bad, and I thought it had happened when we lived there. It happened like the you know a few months after we moved, right? Uh, but it stays with you. I mean, how could mm -hmm. it? How could it not? You know, it's not the kind of thing you completely wash, but um, you know, the, the the horror of violent crime, especially when it happens at close proximity, you know, it makes it all possible. Um, I can, you know, it makes sense to me that this would be part of your formation creatively. Yeah, I should probably see someone about that. <laughs> Todd, please, this is your cry for help. Uh, the long, successful cry for help. Yeah, right. And I want to talk to you, too, about, uh, you know, when it, as an extension of kind of the research question, mm -hmm. is the daily reading the tracking of news like are there things that you and other uh crime writers read online regularly that most of us do not or like are you just going to the new york times like looking for crime stories or you know are there shows that you're watching like are there parts of your like media ecosystem that we should know about <laughs> well the one nice thing is that because my brother lee is a crime writer also we end up sharing a lot of like oh my god did you see this type things with each other. Um, but also, like, cops that I know will will contact me and say, I got to tell you about a crazy thing that just happened to me. Um, so when you start making contacts, you start you start getting news. But I'm always reading. Like, I, I, I ritually read the newspaper every single morning. Part of it is just my process, right, of, of waking up. And part of it is I'm always looking for that one little weird thing that I could use for something, that one one little fact. Um, the one thing that I do watch a lot of, um, in addition to the, you know, murder in a small town, everyone thought Brad seemed like a normal person. <laughs> he was so a he normal did, podcaster. Yeah. He was a podcaster who seemed to have a taste for human flesh. <laughs> um, I do watch 
that show the first 48 and I watch it specifically to hear cops talk and for their, their, their black humor and for their logic in questioning someone, because it's a documentary show, the first 48 hours of a murder. And I just like to spend time watching those cops do their thing. Um, and I have a friend who's a cop and a writer named Paul Bishop. He used to be the head of major crimes in LAPD. Fascinating guy. He's not a, he's not a police officer anymore. Um, and he teaches this class on how cops interrogate. And every single time I watch that show, like you can see exactly the method that they use. It's this method, one of these methods that Paul helped develop, where they start out across the room, and by the time the interrogation is over, they are sitting in your lap. Like they just keep scooting the chair closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to you so that you have nothing to look at but their faces. And I just love watching that sort of in action. Um, but it's also like, I, I like to hear how they trap people in the way that in, in conversation, ask them questions that they answer that they shouldn't have answers to all that stuff. I love that. Um, I spend a lot of time also looking to see what the petty crimes are in my local newspaper. I read the patch. The patch is a terrible website that was, was going to like overtake local news, but it's just a compendium of liquor store robberies basically. <laughs> uh, so I look at that stuff. Um, but you know, I, I think most everything that happens for me in terms of the creation of story is I see myself or someone else in a situation and I start to wonder how it could go south or I see someone doing something and I say, what are they doing? Like the, the genesis of my Gangsterland novels, and we might've talked about this in 2014, um, is I saw someone walk out of a cemetery that I'd never seen anyone walk out of before, an old Native American cemetery in Palm Springs that has, has been there since the 1800s. And I was like, who are they going to visit? Who's walking out of there? Like, what? what is going on there? And then my next thought was, man, if I wanted to get away with murder, I'd go bury a body in that cemetery. And then I was like, well, hello, hold hey. on. <laughs> <laughs> hold on. I like nice things. Where's this going? <laughs> and so frequently, it, it you know, I'm, I'm criminal-minded, I think. And so a lot of times, Wendy and I will be at Trader Joe's or something, and I'll I'll see something or I'll, I'll look at somebody and I'll mutter something. And Wendy will be like, I need to not have the hitman here with me for five minutes. I, I just need you to find the vegan cookies. Um, where's, like, the, where's the uh, cashew milk, please? Yeah, like, could, could you just find those salt and pepper chips and not look at someone and imagine them with their head on a pike? <laughs> Oh yeah, I'm on it. Um, but particularly, you know, during this time at home, where I'm sitting and staring out my window a lot and looking at the neighbors, man, there's a lot of questions I have for the people who live here. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I think that's one of the aspects of pandemic life um, that has been written about a lot is the tensions and like the 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 breakdowns. <laughs> that are happening in a lot of homes, you know, where people who previously had a lot more physical separation from one another are suddenly locked in together. Yeah. Um, that seems yeah. like, that seems like ripe territory for possible bad behavior. Oh, for sure. 
I will tell you one thing that happened during this time that uh, I haven't stopped thinking about, and I did write an essay about it. This was about three months in. We have a neighbor who clearly had Alzheimer's, and he would wander the neighborhood before the pandemic, moving everyone's garbage cans or stealing everyone's garbage cans. And so you'd walk outside, and the house next door would have 25 garbage cans in front of it. (laughs) You'd just be like, oh, my God. Like that poor guy is stealing everyone's garbage cans. And then people would start like day of the dead walking down the street looking for their garbage cans. And then slowly like, well, I guess I'll take this one. Um, But he was getting progressively worse. And there was one day Wendy went to go for a run. This was in April. And I was just sitting um, in my house. And this was a time when birds were inexplicably also attacking our house. Like all day long, a bird would hit itself into the window over and over and over again. I was like, so this is how it ends. Like, <laughs> society's breaking down. Um, but I was, I was sitting at the kitchen table, reading the newspaper, and I looked up, and he was standing in the middle of my house, this man. And at first, I didn't quite recognize him, and I was like, what's going on? Who's this man? And I looked at him, and I said you're in the wrong place. And he looks around and he says, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. You, you live next door. And he says, okay. Okay. And he's just sort of sitting around. We live in the exact same house. So I understand why it's, it's also sort of discombobulating for that purpose. You mean just like same design? Yeah. Same design, same floor plan. So I say, well, let me, let me walk you out. And for some reason, like, like the first thought in my mind was I should be upset about this. And the second thought was, Oh my gosh, it's our, it's my neighbor who has Alzheimer's. And so I wasn't upset. Obviously I was worried and scared, but this was April, right? When it was really bad. And so April of, of 2020, I should note <laughs> um, for whenever you're listening to this. And so I, I begin to walk him to the house next door. And I said, this is where you live. And he puts out his hand to shake my hand and I'm like, I'm not touching this guy. Like I, I don't want to die. <laughs> and, and I was like, um, I'm sick. So I don't want to shake your hand. And he says, Oh, I'm sick too. I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. And he looks around and he says, it's been so quiet here lately. What's going on. And I was like, it's just a really windy day. It's just a really windy day. I said, you should go back inside. And he puts his hand out again. And I, I said, oh, I'm, I'm sick. And he said, right, right, and I'm sick. And he goes and he walks into his house. And then I was like, oh, man, this, that was a highly upsetting experience. And then two days later, he was wandering around. Cops came. And we haven't seen him since. Um, and I'm, I, and I, we don't really know our neighbors that well. And so I feel real hesitant to be like, where's your dad? Is he dead? Did you put him in a home? what happened but it's it's one of those things that as a crime writer you know my mind goes 13 different ways about what could have happened to that guy if he'd walked into the wrong house right if he'd walked in the house of a gun owner and stood there he could be dead already you know sure sure or you walk in the house of one of these characters that i write about and sees this old man and says i'm gonna ransom this guy or i'm gonna kill him and i'm gonna sell his skin <laughs> you know like <laughs> Like these are the things that I I often think about. <laughs> you never know who those people are whose house you walk into. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like I guess 
I, I normally would, would equate this with like city living where it's like, man, you just don't know your neighbors. Who knows what's going on inside people's houses? There's crazy shit happening all over Los Angeles, for example. Right. Um, but there's also crazy shit happening in gated golf course communities. You know? Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like that no place is immune. You never know what goes on behind closed doors. Never, never indeed. And so that, that's the that's the kind of shit I like to write about. Um, and that's that's what really the collection is about is small towns with you know are, are just as dangerous as anywhere else and that the desert will try to kill you the the environment will kill you and the people will kill you <laughs> <laughs> um what about you know you, like as you're reading you know online and reading the paper on a daily basis instead of kind of you know driving around and gathering ideas you have like a notebook, you, you type it into your phone. Like, I don't know, like, I guess you have to have a trove, like a, like a file where you're uh, keeping all these little tidbits for possible inclusion. Um, like for the news stories and stuff I do, but most of the time I, I, I don't know what happened, Brad. I'm 50. I turned 50 in January and I inexplicably still have an obsessively good memory. Oh, good for you. Yeah, I don't know what happened. I, we didn't have kids. Maybe that helped. <laughs> I was going to say, like, mine is completely <laughs> shut. Did you smoke a lot of weed in your youth? I always no. Would... I've been eating a lot of edibles. I'll yeah, say that <laughs> yeah. Why not? Right. Um, it's legal now. Sure. Um, so no, I mean, I like I said, I'll jot things down in in a notebook. But you know, oftentimes what I do now is, um, and this is really true for the last year, is I'll get in my car just to get out of the house and, like you, drive around a little bit, and I'll take pictures. And the pictures really are um, to remind me of things. There's there's a lot of weird stuff in the desert, all these abandoned golf courses and stuff, places that have gone out of business, um, abandoned housing tracks, and um, you know these haunted places that still look the same as they did when I was a kid living here, but now are empty. And I've been I've been tinkering with something to write about with those things. So frequently now I'll go out and you know I'll, I'll take pictures of uh, you know random golf balls under wild creosote or whatever. I don't know what it's going to turn into. <laughs> um, but, you know, the other the other thing I do now, I, a lot of is um, I'm fascinated by town names, like these towns that are out in the middle of the desert and how they got their names. Sure. So there's a story in the book called Ragtown, and that's a, that's a real place. And it's this whole mining district, this ore mining district that essentially is between Palm Springs and Las Vegas and the Mojave Desert. Um, and all the towns are named for, um, you know, towns in the Middle East or in Russia. So there's Baghdad and Siberia and all these weird little towns. And so lately I've been reading up about how these towns grew, how they became vacated, what happened in these places. Because I feel like, oh, maybe there's maybe there's something out there that I can write about again or tie it into the Salton Sea in some way. Because invariably all of it is about someone found something of worth. They stripped it and left it, you know? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I feel like, you know, you're working in crime fiction um, with like a literary flair. And maybe you're also making like th like throughout the entire body of your work, like some sort of critique of capitalism. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny you should say that. I This is something that people have been asking me about a lot lately. Like, it seems like your, your noir work is really like about neo-capitalism in america in the 21st century and i was like well I, it's not first in my mind but yeah in fact it, it is sort of about that um you know you know what it's it comes from if you live out here in the desert and 
like, you know, I'm a hypocrite. You know, I, I live in a gated community on a golf course on a man-made lake on land that was Indian land and that we've turned into a, an, an imaginary place. It's like, this shouldn't exist. I'm looking out my window right now and I have these towering trees in my front yard that should not live here. And I really appreciate the desert as a real living, vibrant thing. If you live here long enough, you understand it when the season of the lizard is and when the se season of the flying roaches or when the bats show up. And it's impossible now during this time spent living at home not to really understand the environment at a sort of granular level as you see things live and die just around you on a, on a daily basis. And so I've become more and more inclined to write about the desert as a thing that people are destroying um, and why I'm able to live inside of it when I'm just as big a part of the problem. And maybe it's just that I, I get annoyed by people coming out for stagecoach. Like that might just be it. Like <laughs> right. play your country music somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> and do you write every day? Like how do you, what's your ritual? Uh, I do not write every day. Um, I'm a big believer in not writing. <laughs> Um, when I'm working on a book, I'll probably write four days a week, five days a week, something like that. When I'm not writing a book, like right now, um, I, since I'm just basically out promoting and, I, and I'm working on some screenplay stuff, um, you know, I'll probably write three days a week. You know, if I have a book review, you know, that's one day. Um, but I really believe that in order for me to be effective at my job, I have to live. I can't just sit in this little room and stare into the the black darkness of my soul on zoom and and hope to be able to convey anything that people find enjoyable so i really like to be out into the world and, and, and doing stuff which of course has made this year hard um but i i spend a lot of time reading um i like to i like to do a lot of research just for things i'll never need um you know like for instance sitting right now on my desk underneath a copy of the low desert I'm showing this to Brad. This makes great podcasts. Here's a copy of The Low Desert. But here's also a copy of 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation, <laughs> which is a, a, a scholarly look of, about people who think they've been reincarnated and all the evidence thereof. Like, I got an idea that I want to write about a guy who really believes he's been reincarnated. And, what the, like, and so, therefore, he's able to go out and do really fucked up stuff because he's like, well, I've lived before. I'll live again. I might as well go out and do some stuff. <laughs> right. Like I've been reading about that lately. Um, so it, it, it comes and fits and starts. Um, but, you know, when I do write, it's for a long time. Like, you know, I'll sit down at, at 11. And I'll, I typically will work from like 11 until Rachel Maddow. <laughs> right. That's a solid day. Yeah, it's a solid day. Are you pretty prolific? Like when you sit down in a session, are you getting like 5,000 words in a sit or something crazy? Or is it less than that? Oh, it's significantly less than that. Okay, it, good. I'm Sometimes it'll be a thousand words. Sometimes it'll be 10 words. Sometimes I'll write a bunch of stuff and I'll delete it the next day. Um, but when I get really going, you know, when I'm, when I'm in the zone, as it were, um, I can write several thousand words in one day, but that's typically predicated on a conversation with my editor that goes like this. We need the book on <laughs> April 28th. If that's we a... don't have the book on April 28th, the book will not come out until the following year. Are we, are we in accordance here? Do we understand each other? Yes, Dan. And that, and that helps. 
Yeah, it really does help. I was so late on on my book, Gangster Nation. I was like six months late on that book, and I was like, well, I can't do that anymore. They were very angry with me. <laughs> well, I was thinking too, you know, I think about people who live in cold weather climates that I've talked with, and I think I've probably had conversations on the show over the years about like people kind of burrowing in the winter and getting shit done. And I would sort of lament like the eternal springtime of Los Angeles because it's like always nice here. And like, the, right. it's easy to be like, oh, I'll just go outside, take a hike or something. And uh, I got to believe though, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, that living out in the, uh, in Palm Desert, uh, that in the summer when it gets super fucking hot, you must be more productive as a writer because you're like, yeah. Is that yes. how is that how it works? Is that like your 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 Absolutely. high productivity season? Yeah, summer is like I stopped teaching June fifteenth and June sixteenth. Like my brain's like, you should write a book. Today is a day to write a book, Todd. <laughs> my brain also talks to me vaguely like a nineteen seventies puppet. Um, <laughs> yeah, the summer is. I mean, it's intolerably hot. It's one hundred and twenty degrees for three months, and our entire lives change, of course, because of that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's wildly productive for me, but also as a desert person, the heat stops bothering you at some point and like, you want to go do your shit, you know? And the summer's also the time period here when all those tourists that I want to die in grisly ways aren't here. And so we can go to the restaurants we, we want to go to. We can do the things we want to do. We just have to do them between 4 a.m. and 7 a.m. <laughs> or 8 and 3 a.m. <laughs> That's it. And it's tolerable. Like once the sun goes down, you can function at least. Well, I mean, it's still very hot and it's when the flying roaches are about. But if, you, if you've built up a tolerance, <laughs> see, this is the thing is summertime is the time of year when German tourists come to the desert and what happens is they disappear. So the news will say, uh, a hiker disappeared in Palm Springs today. Uh, he was from Germany. His name is Axel Frugard. And and what I do then is I turn to Wendy and I say, he's dead. He didn't disappear. He's dead. He took a bottle of water to go hiking. When it's 120 degrees, they'll find him in October. And come October, body was found on the Lichen Trail. It was Axel Frugard found <laughs> with a single bottle of water. His desiccated corpse, you're like, Jesus Christ. So people come here and they think that they can just, the, like, that the heat won't affect them in some way. Um, not I'm me. A, not me. I, I cannot do the heat. I, I would get crushed. I'm a hardier kind. You know, I'm super physically fit, as you know. <laughs> um, as, as Jews, we're allowed to spend a lot of time outside in the desert without penalty. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but I mean, you do acclimate too. I mean, you yeah. know, you live someplace, uh, like I think I've gotten a lot softer living in Los Angeles and you think it won't happen to you. You know, you think like, oh, you know, I, I grew up in Milwaukee. Like I dealt with freezing cold temperatures and extreme weather my whole life practically until I came here. And then like a year into it, you know, it got down to like 50 degrees and I was like freaking out, I'm, like bundling up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is absolutely true. But but the flip side too of living here is that you you start to think that everywhere is like where you live. And so we'll be here, it'll be 125 degrees and we'll decide to go into LA for the day to, you know, see friends or whatever and 
will hit Redlands and it's 66 degrees and we're wearing, I'm wearing like dolphin shorts and a half top. <laughs> no, this isn't going to work. <laughs> what, uh, I want to ask you before I let you go, I want to ask you about, um, book sales and the TV show that you mentioned earlier. Um, most of the writers, I talk to a lot of literary writers, literary fiction, nonfiction, some poets. So harder a lot of times to sell a lot of copies in that realm and that genre. Um, your books have found an audience. Like, is that accurate? Like, I don't know how to do the math on this. You know what I'm saying? Like, it seems like you're doing great and you've got the adaptations happening. Um, is it easier to write in this genre from an audience readership perspective? Yes. I mean, it's called popular fiction for a reason. <laughs> but not everybody, I mean, I guess, you know, it's still competitive. There's a lot of people yeah. do There's There's a lot of people doing it. You've got to, sure. you know, you, I think if you build a series that can help, because then people kind of like get familiar with the character and want to go along for the ride in each book. Um, but just in terms of like building a career and getting to the point where when you put a book out, you know, enough people buy it that, you can survive. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm of a couple minds about this. You know, I, I started out more as what I consider sort of a literary fiction writer. And then about midway through my career, I realized that, you know, I wasn't ever going to be Tim O'Brien, you know, that wasn't going to happen. Um, and I really wanted to write crime fiction. Like that was, that was what I really enjoyed reading. It's what I really enjoyed writing. And I should, I should stop pretending to be a writer that I'm not. And I, so I devoted myself to becoming a really good crime writer. And I started out by first writing Burn Notice, which essentially got me a audience. So writing books based on a, a very successful television show, you know, those books sold extraordinarily well. And I wrote five of them. Um, and, you know, they still sell extraordinarily well. They're, they're evergreen. And, um, I, you know, I think coming from that and then writing a book like Gangsterland, which, um, to be perfectly honest, was wildly successful and, and widely hailed. Um, I think part of it is that the expectation of quality wasn't there. The people did not think that the book was going to be good, <laughs> that it wasn't going to have the deep thought or the literary flair that you've been talking about um, as it relates to this book. And so there, there's always been a ghettoization of genre fiction, no matter who's writing it, that it's somehow less good um, as literature with a capital L um, than something about someone writing about their sister who drowned, you know, right. um, or drowned with cancer while holding a baby <laughs> in, in Nantucket in 1970 <laughs> during an ice storm. Um <laughs> And I think you're seeing right now in in crime fiction in particular that 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 notion is drifting away because of the writers who are now writing crime fiction, particularly in Los Angeles. And you think about writers like Steph Cha or Ivy Pakoda uh, or Dennis Lehane, who lives in Los Angeles now, um, who are bringing literary um, chops to what had been a pulp form. And you begin to see that people really respond to it. Um, so, it, you know, is it easier to sell a lot of books in a popular format? Sure. Um, people like to read things on cruise ships. 
Well, they did when they were so crucial. <laughs> yeah, right. With, with a with a deep hacking cough. It's right. a wonderful um, way to spend a week. So in that way, for sure, um, the the last eight years of my career have been more successful than the first eight years of my career. But the other thing, too, is with a collection of short stories like The Low Desert, collection of short stories are extraordinarily difficult to get people to buy. People don't read short stories. People don't want to read short stories, which is weird because you think in a time when people seem to have no attention span, reading for 15 minutes to getting a complete experience would be good. Um, but when I was doing the book, it was a real concern of mine. Like, I'm, these, I feel like these stories are good. I feel like this book is good. Who's going to want to buy a book of short stories that reads crime fiction? Because it's not a natural part of the crime fiction world. It's a natural part of the literary fiction world, but not crime fiction. And so we were very intentional to put on the cover of the book gangster stories because that way if you're a reader of crime fiction you're a reader of thrillers and you see a book cover that that evokes the notion that someone is being buried in the desert um, even though there's no body there it's just words being buried in the desert um, and it says gangster stories on there well if you're a reader of crime fiction you're not worried that you're going to read a bunch of stories about people who live on the 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 head of a pin, you know, <laughs> or, or, or you're not going to read about more people drowning in 1976 with cancer holding a baby. <laughs> um, all the kinds of stories I used to write. Um, so, we were, so we were very intentional to put gangster stories on there to let people know that this was crime fiction. And I think because of that, to be, again, to be perfectly honest, the reception that the book has received uh, this, this year, which has been, beyond my wildest imagination to be perfectly honest um is because it's genre fiction is doing something different that's right and i think i would recommend it to um especially i would recommend it to writers who normally work in a literary vein um i would i guess classify myself that way and this book like just it was just an eye opener you know because it was doing genre fiction in a literary way and it was just fun to read. Like, so like you say, the drowning cancer baby <laughs> paradigm, um, a lot of times, you know, and that stuff can be, you know, really, um, wonderful too, but it's just, you know, th there are ways to sort of play with genre that can pack a human punch. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's what these stories are doing. Like I cared about the characters in the book. I don't always care when I'm reading genre fiction or watching, uh, a gangster movie and that's to your credit i think what people are responding to in reviews and elsewhere um is just the insight into human beings you know like you have a, a a good way with that and it's not necessarily always the case in any book you know whatever genre it happens to fall in uh you know whatever umbrella it happens to fall under so i mean th that's not all that this collection is doing but i think that might be at the heart uh, of its appeal like it's a fine book and uh and, you know the other thing is it's i i also try to write stories that are just fun yeah you know, like, yeah stories where i like if you don't think i had a great damn time writing about some of the stories in this book like you're wrong <laughs> like they're like the story that we mentioned you know an hour ago about the the goon number four i've never had a better time in my life writing a short story about the goon in the back of the Room, right right takes a class at a community college and makes his own this american life podcast <laughs> that was one of the great joys of my existence was writing that character 
um, or deciding midway through a story, oh, put a clown in this. Like the, those are the things that part of it is to entertain you, but part of it is to entertain me. Sure. No, I could feel that. You know, I could feel that too. I mean, knowing you a little bit and knowing your sense of humor, like I was emailing you, like there are certain lines that are like uh, in the book or in the stories that are, um, they're they're playing to sensory detail, grisly sensory detail, a lot of the time, and I can feel you having fun there. You know, it's like it's a it's kind of it's the kind of thing you see in a gangster movie. It's the violence, it's the um, just the grim realities of crime at ground level. You know, it's like when you're chopping up the body or whatever. You know, like right. um, you can't. I can't help but feel you having fun and kind of winking a little bit as real. You know, as real as it is on the page, it's also. I, I guess that in order for it to be popular fiction that pulpy fun like sense of fun has to be in there somewhere yeah it, it can't all just be horribly depressing stuff where you want to throw yourself off of a bridge i mean there's as you know having read the book there's some depressing stuff that happens in this book um and there's there's two stories about this cocktail waitress tanya palm springs and pilgrims and then a third story that concludes her, her story but we won't tell you what that is um those are two literary stories, Palm Springs and Pilgrims, that come from me dropping a pebble into the water with a crime in 1973. And her story is that crime coming to shore 30 years later. Um, but then I conclude her story with a straight up crime story. You know, you've, you've had a literary experience looking at a woman trying to make sense of her life. And then it concludes with with the moment of just the darkest shit I've ever written in my entire life. Um, well, and I was going to say, cause as, as fun as you, you know, as fun as the stories are to read and as fun as, uh, as much fun as you might've had writing them. I also have to believe that you had like, like some sincere feelings for, especially what's her name? Tanya. Is that the, Tanya, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of character that like, I could imagine like, uh, you know, you actually shed a tear when you're writing certain parts of it. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of feeling for these people too. Like it's not yeah. just purely Todd cackling in his office. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's a lot of feeling for it. And these are some characters I've lived with for a long time. So the, the main character in the low desert, um, he first appeared in my book, living dead girl in 2002. Uh, and I'd written a short story about him in the 1990s. So, you know, he's, he's lived in my head for my entire writing career. And so when good things or bad things happen to him, he's, he's spent so much time in my brain. He feels like a real person at this point. I bet. I bet. And they, you know, it's not only that it's the, it, you know, you've lived in the desert a long time, you know, the people yes. and the, the people that um, populate your books are the people that you're surrounded with one way or another, you know, and, uh, that comes through like your, uh, you know, your understanding of that terrain in a, in a, like a lived in way is definitely palpable. Well, you know, the, the funny thing too is, so the, the desert is a, is a pretty small town. Um, you know, the, I mean, there's 300,000 people live between Palm Springs and the Salton sea, but it's still a pretty small town. And I am, you know, I'm, I'm a local boy who made good. And so every time a new book comes out, like they'll do a feature story on me in the local newspaper and it won't just appear, be in the living section. It'll take up the whole front page of the newspaper. <laughs> with the picture. Good for you. And 
I was a little <laughs> I was a little hesitant this time because I'm making fun of in some cases things that are true and real about this place. So we've talked about the clown before. There's there's a guy named Harpo who dresses like a clown and goes to bars in this city and you take pictures with him. He's a real dude. And I've <laughs> turned him into this murder clown in my in my vision. And I was like, oh, Harpo read that. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do I now have to worry I'm going to be somewhere and a fucking silent clown is going to creep on me in the, you know, in the corner of the black Angus. And <laughs> hey, listen, when you're, when you're a silent clown, you know, you have to expect some of this. I mean, come on. There, there's actually battling clowns in this town. There's more than one person who dresses as a clown and goes into bars and restaurants and takes pictures with tourists. <laughs> <laughs> That's desert shit, Brad. That's desert shit. That's desert shit right there. Well, what about the TV show? Like, is Gangsterland, is that is that happening? I know how fickle and weird and slow Hollywood can be, but it sounds like you're scripting it. We are uh, we are deep into it. So uh, a, a very fine company who uh, streams television shows and also delivers you your groceries um, optioned it. And uh, I have a great team who I can't tell you who they are working on it. But if you were to open up the last page of the book and read the thanks, you'll see them. Um, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. Um, but we have a great uh, we have a great team working on it. Uh, the pilot's been written. Um, we're hoping for good things sometime soon. Um, cool. But it's been a, it's been a really great experience working on you know on on getting it set up. Well, and it, you know. I guess you, you spoke to this earlier. These stories could potentially be material that you mine for B stories in a in the series, in the Gangsterland series. Yeah. And some of them stand on their own too. And there's, you know, knock on that's me actually knocking on wood because my desk is made of wood. There's lots of interest right now in some of the other stories too. And some of these stories I want to keep for myself and adapt them myself. Right. Um, you mean there are people that want to like uh, option like individual stories in the low desert? Correct. I can, yeah, I can totally see that. Like, I mean, there's, you know, like these stories stand alone, uh, you know, any one of them could just be read as its own universe, but it's also entirely possible to expand, you, you know, yeah. with some probably more than others, but still I could easily see any of these storylines and characters sort of, uh, you know, morphing into a larger thing. Yeah. I really think the low desert itself about the development of the salt and sea there's something there. Get Scorsese on the phone. Come on. <laughs> I, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> uh, all right, man. Well, listen, huge congrats uh, on this collection and on all the success that you've you've had and will likely continue to have um, as long as the uh, silent clown in your town does not um, well, look, Brad, decide to exact revenge upon you. Here's the thing. The only way you and I ever get to see each other is that every two years I put out a new book. And we have a two-hour heartfelt conversation about our lives. And uh, then we disappear. And then <laughs> I just see you on Lit Hub and wonder, is he getting all that Lit Hub advertising cash? How's he living? <laughs> just flooded in Lit Hub advertising cash. I'm actually, uh, you can't see, but from the waist down is nothing but Lit Hub advertising cash. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, listeners, I don't know if you know, but Brad and I represent the the locus point behind the lit hub radio network without other people in literary disco, that whole enterprise collapses from the center. It does. It's just disintegrates. 
Um, well, it's great to talk with you, and uh, I'll be you know be interested to see how things develop, you know, TV wise, but also, you know, just with whatever you come up with next. I'm a fan. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Good to see you. Okay, there you go. That is Todd Goldberg. His brand new story collection is called The Low Desert, available now from Counterpoint. You can find him online at toddgoldberg.com. You can also track him down on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. His handle on Twitter is at Todd Goldberg. The collection, again, is called The Low Desert. Go get your copy immediately. This is really good desert noir. It packs a punch, I'm telling you. The Low Desert by Todd Goldberg. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Almost 700 episodes. Can you believe that? All of them are available to you for free. It's wide open. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this program and you get something from it, and you have the means, support the show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Throw a buck in the hat. Throw $10,000 in the hat. Jeff Bezos, where are you? Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. This program has its own official app. Did you know that? The Other People with Brad Listy app. Go get the app. It's free. If you want to get an Other People t-shirt, you can also do that uh, by going to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Click on the t-shirt in the left sidebar. They're good t-shirts. They're soft. They fit well. I like them. I like t-shirts. I know t-shirts. It's the one thing in my life that I feel confident in in this fallen world. Go get a t-shirt. You can also get a sweatshirt. I even uh, offer onesies to infant children. I'm not even kidding. I'm fully branded as we speak. What else can I tell you? Uh, next week on the program, Hari Kunzru is my guest. I'm like 90% sure that's the case. His new novel is called Red Pill, or his latest novel. And it, uh, it disturbed me. <laughs>